Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the stories of Philip K. Dick or one of the novels. Uh, usually I'll break up the novels into several episodes. And in this case, we are into the second half of Philip K. Dick's 1956 novel, The World Jones Made. This novel is about three main things. Um, you might want to go back and listen to the first half if you're just joining us, but uh, just as a refresher, the three main things that this novel is about is the frontier. It's about a precognitive mutant who is often compared to Hitler, and we actually have a lot of fascist themes and motifs throughout the, the novel. And it's about a fractured and broken family as well. And because the, the pressures of someone who's very loyal to an institution and what that means for family life. And then it's also about this philosophy of relativism. So I guess that's four things. But uh, it's about the philosophy of relativism, which was an effort in this uh, story to imagine an ideology that could avoid war. And coming off of the First and Second World War and then a Third World War, which destroyed much of the earth, the leaders of the world established a, a government, a world government called FedGov, but it also established the ruling ideology of relativism, which basically means that nobody is allowed to express an opinion as fact, right? Basically, it's a philosophy that's going to try to suppress or eliminate ideology as a force in political life. This philosophy runs into a conflict due to the rise of this figure, this precog Lloyd Floyd, Floyd Jones, who can see one year in the future. So his predictions about the future are not guesses. They're not opinions. They are true. They're true facts. So he's really not against the law. The government, unable to arrest him, basically has to watch as he builds up a political movement. Um, other things that happen in the first half of the novel that's important to mention is uh, our main character, Doug Cusack, is an uh, agent in the security arm of the FedGov. And his job is basically to track down people who violate relativism. He becomes quite important in the, the field. In fact, he's the first person to identify Jones as, as a threat. And he's the first one to bring him in for, for questioning. However, he's not really able to keep his eyes on, on Floyd Jones because he's got other cases on their tasks. He marries a woman, Nina, becomes Nina Kusak, his wife, who's an artist and really rejects a lot of the principles of relativism. And in fact, as we learn in the in chapter eight, nine, and ten, which is a, three chapters all about a double date um, between Kusak and his great his friend in also in the security division of, of FedGov, they have a, a double date. And during this, they, they learn that Nina is actually a supporter of Floyd Jones, and she's actually supporting this secret society of, of political radicals. Uh, and this basically leads to the breakup of their marriage. And that's where we left off at the halfway point of the world Jones made. 
I really like those three chapters at the midway point of this novel, eight, uh, eight, nine, and ten, uh, because you see, you see, kind of relativism in practice and what it means for social life and leisure and and pleasure. And they go to a club, and much of these three chapters are spent in a club, in which you have people are able to take drugs openly. People walk around with old clothes. You have a stage performance in which you have hermaphrodites, which are mutants who can change their sex at will, making love on the stage. It's a very freewheeling environment, and you know it's kind of almost hippie. This was written before the the hippies, but you get a kind of a hippie feel from from this um, from this description and this 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 scene, this kind of club they're in, and it predicts a lot of Dick's later interests in the drug culture and, you know, that you see in novels like The Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge, and Ubik, and, and those kinds of novels. So uh, let's just jump into this. Chapter 11. So we start out with Doug Cusack and Tyler Fleming. Now, Tyler Fleming was, the other, was part of the other half of the double date they were on. So it was Doug and Nina Cusack, and then it was Kaminsky. Kaminsky, his co-worker, and his date was Tyler Fleming, who was kind of an, someone he met in the office. So it starts out with uh, Nina. Uh, well, we find out that Doug Cusack has separated from his wife since the events of the previous chapter. She's gone on to take her maiden name of Nina Longstrom. And their child is not given to one of them. It's put under the custody of the state, which is an interesting idea. You see this sometimes in utopian literature, even like Kang Youwei's Da Tong Shu, which is a, a Chinese text from the early 20th century or maybe the late 19th. It's, it's right on the turn of the 20th century that it was written. He predicts a society without even family at all, where all children are sort of raised in, in the state in, by the state. And this is the common motif in a lot of utopian literature. In this case, as long as the family's together, the child custody is shared. But as soon as the marriage broke, is broken up, they deem it better for the child to be cared for by the state. So he's discussing this situation with Tyler Fleming, and he concludes that he's basically all alone. All he has is his job, right? So the, the, the classic kind of policeman motif of the policeman who is so obsessed with his work that he alienates his family and eventually is all alone with no one, you know, the McNulty from The Wire kind of figure. Meanwhile, there's signs of the growth of Floyd Jones movement called Patriots United, and this is a group that actually Cusack's wife was involved with. And the way the evidence of its growth are in things like mobs on the street, paramilitary organizations quite conspicuously active. Now, this is a very interesting part of it. Their major major ideology is, is the discovery of a second Earth or the belief that they should discover a second Earth through a massive crusade for interstellar exploration. Now, Jones was able to rise in power out of nativism and xenophobia about the drifters, these kind of one-celled organisms that just sort of float down and land on the earth. But Jones has always been interested in not just rehabilitating earth after the war, but actually moving out to find a new frontier, right? What makes Jones kind of an attractive figure to a lot of readers, even though he's heading this sort of fascistic organization, is that he does have this vision of a, of a second earth. And in Dick's other early novel, uh, solar lottery it's the same thing there you had the what was it the Pearsonites the Pearsonites were people who believed in a tenth planet of the solar system which would be essentially like a new frontier that could be settled and explored they have one major political demand and that's the dissolution of the FedGov and the placement of Jones as supreme commander to deal with 
kind of this dual crisis. One, to find the second Earth and, and we continue over, over uh, stellar exploration and expansion, and then to deal with the drifter crisis, which is still ongoing. Cusack actually believes that they're quite idealistic with this vision of the future, but he confesses also that he's a realist and not really capable of, of the dreams of the followers of the movement. And even people like his ex-wife, he really doesn't quite jive with their, their kind of dreaminess. And we know these kinds of people, right, who are very practical and cynical at times or very honest, right? And then you got the dreamers, the people who have radical political ideas or, you know, and sometimes those radical ideas aren't as radical. It's, it's all about social context, right? What makes something possible? Kusak um, is someone who's very practical and he just kind of works with what's in front of him. He really can't waste time dreaming of a second Earth. Now he returns home uh, and finds a recorded message by the security director Pearson. So this is the head of the security apparatus that he's a part of. And it demands that Kusak return to the SecPool offices. So he makes a quick sandwich and he follows orders. What else would he do? He's a very, he's very much a company man. In the office, Kusak learns that that Max Kaminsky, his great friend, stole a large amount of classified documents and was going to deliver them to the Jones movement. So not only does his wife turn his back on, on him and join the F Jones movement, we have evidence that his best friend, Kaminsky, is also involved secretly with the Jones movement. Uh, Kaminsky was therefore caught, captured, and sent to a labor camp in Saskatchewan. Pearson regrets that he is unable to shoot traitors such as Kaminsky, noting that numerous other agents have been also defecting at the same time. So it seems the security apparatus is starting to break down. Therefore, Kusak is promoted to Kaminsky's position, which was slightly higher than Kusak's, and he's told to take over security of the Dr. Rafferty secret project, which is under the Department of Health. Now, what is this secret project? Well, for this, you have to go all the way back to chapter one, the very first chapter of the novel, which many readers may have forgotten about or kind of put in the back of their head. And Dick does this on purpose. This project involves mutants who are being kind of held in a thing called the womb or the refuge, which is a place where these mutants can't survive in, in regular Earth air. They have to live in the refuge. And that's the project. Now, we still don't quite know what it's about, but we are going to get an answer very shortly. Kusak goes to follow up on the Rafferty project and meet him. And so he goes to San Francisco where this project is set. Rafferty introduces him into the refuge. Kushak is shown the mutants living in the refuge. And Rafferty explains that they're being genetically engineered to live on Venus. The eight people, the eight mutants living on the refuge, are survivors from 40 different attempts to genetically engineer life that can survive on Venus. They're not natural mutants caused by the war. Like most of the mutants on Earth, they're instead carefully created using Rafferty's own DNA. So in a sense, they're Rafferty's own children. And the refuge is actually a replication of the conditions on Venus. So what can we make of this chapter, chapter 11? Well, we have two competing visions of interstellar exploration and expansion. Jones wants to go beyond the solar system because no place on the, in the solar system except Earth is capable of housing human life. That's where he wants to go. Rafferty, meanwhile, is think, thinking about ways that humans can be modified through mutations, propagating inspiration from the vast variety of mutations that emerged after the war, and then using the, these mutations to settle in the solar system itself, finding the second Earth right here in the solar system, right nearby. 
Now, the refuge is not only revealed to be kind of a biological incubator for these mutants, it's also um, designed as a social experiment. Rafferty says, It's a little difficult to take it at first, and in a way I suppose it's almost funny. I've seen doctors laugh out loud. They're small, they're frail, and they have a kind of worried frown, like me. They toil around the refuge, they argue and discourse and fight and fret and make love. They have a complete community. The refuge is their world, and in it they form a total organic society. End quote. So you get a suggestion that the plan of Rafferty is not only to create life that can survive on Venus, but to lay the foundation for a more organic society that won't be conflicted. So you won't need relativism or a philosophy that suppresses individualism because you're going to have a more collective society in the first place. Okay, so chapter 12. So at the refuge, uh, Kusak and Rafferty are continuing to discuss the Venus Project. And the question is, well, why not just put this DNA or the mutants as infants or children onto Mars? Why not just simply transplant the mutants onto Venus? Rafferty rejects that and he says he wants to prepare them really for settlement. So he wants not to just plant them there, but to make them go through the frontier process themselves. And he compares the refuge to a school where they're going to learn the skills, the abilities, the social organization, and everything else they need to actually be settlers. And I think this is an important distinction. In this sense, you do have almost the Jonesian vision of a, of a frontier out in the cosmos, but you know, it's, it's, it's just on Venus, so it's a little bit closer to our solar system. But still, the idea here being in our solar system, but the idea here is to make it a settler society. Right? This undermines the major argument of the Floyd-Jones movement. This is undercutting it at its, at its most fundamental because the Floyd-Jones movement is also calling for the settler society, and this creates it. Right? It can't be humans, though. It has to be post-humans because humans can't survive on, on Venus. And at the same time, Jones's approach is military-based. He wants ships, he wants the army, or the navy, I guess, the fleet, to go out and find a suitable second home or second Earth, and if need be, displace local people, you know, maybe go to war with others. And we've seen a lot of, of Dick's early stories that deal with this conflict of exploration and, and, and then the, how this rises to conflict with other societies. Most prominently, the story of the variable man. Jones' approach is military-based, but Rafferty and FedGov are secretly pursuing a scientific and even social, sociological solution to the frontier crisis. So while completing his transfer to San Francisco, Cusack learns that Security Director Pearson struck at Jones' Patriots United movement, declaring the movement illegal and attacking a rally. Jones himself was wounded in the attack. And Cusack fatal, fatalistically ponders that Jones must have known that all this would have happened a year ago and that he probably would have incorporated being wounded into his plans. I talked a little bit about this in the last episode and setting this up, but this seems to be the future set. So it's, it's kind of hard to get your head around what's actually going on. But Jones realizes that he's going to be injured. So he works that into his plans, but... At the same time, he talks about the future as being written, like he doesn't have a choice. Right? So it's, it's not clear where the origin of his decisions are. Is the future completely written out? Or can it, you know, it doesn't seem to be changed in this formulation of it. But it's still, there's the suggestion that he makes decisions or makes plans or changes things based on what he sees 
in front of them. But that's all also all pre-designed, pre-written. It's, it's almost like predestination. Uh, if you're if you know anything about Calvinist theology, you know the prior knowledge doesn't necessarily mean that you know we we don't go through life temporally. The fact that God has pre-knowledge, I mean, doesn't mean that we don't still go through life temporally and, and believe we're making choices. Chapter 13. Um, in Frankfurt, Germany, Floyd Jones is now holding a rally sometime later with perhaps millions of followers. And he's given a speech calling for the expansion of humanity to other systems and condemning the plutocracy of FedGov. So he's full-blown Donald Trump at this point with this big rally, calling out the elite in, in, in the government. Right? In this case, not Washington, but FedGov. A military assassin named Pratt is preparing for his mission. So Pratt is going to be the guy, he's the guy that the FedGov has prepared to assassinate this, this leader. And we get another shout out to the novel Solar Lottery, which was about this conflict between like the assassin and the political leader. The police are trying to control the crowd and there's this huge media presence as well. It's, it's really almost, you know, I don't, I'm not a believer that, that Dick was a, like a low-grade telepath or precog. I know some people like to argue that stuff, but you do get a lot of this kind of Trumpist kind of feel for fear. Of course, he's building this maybe more of a fascist of the mid 20th century. Dick was not that far removed from that at this time. I mean, literally only 10 years or so from the fall of Hitler when this novel was being penned. Now, Pratt, the assassin, meets with the police, a police major, and they discuss the mission. The police uh, chief does not really know if it's an assassination attempt on Jones, but he just thinks it's part of this police action to break up the rally. Pratt and the police chief discuss matters with the, with the curious reporter. And while the rally is marching towards the police barricades, it's, it's actually becoming almost a threat of violence. The police attempt to arrest the marchers, which only sparks a riot. Pratt fires at Jones, but misses. And after... A struggle, Pratt shoots again. This one strikes Jones. This is what wounded him. Yeah, this was the report that Pearson had in the previous chapter. Uh, Jones is wounded, but he's killed by the crowd. The assassin's killed by the crowd. Jones, wounded, feels a personal sense of victory as he watches his followers dismember the assassin. So as Cusack wondered or feared, he feared that the effort to assassinate Jones will simply lead to, what am I trying to say, uh, that the attempt to assassinate Jones would work into his plans. And in fact, we get this, we get from Jones's own expressions and feelings that yes, this is into his, this is his plan. It's going to help him lead, get to power. All right. Then we get to chapter 14. Um, Security Director Pearson is in his office and he realizes that Jones simply cannot be defeated due to his precognitive abilities. So actually, this is in the final hours of FedGov's existence. Um, there's this, there's been this plebiscite and the masses have kind of demanded that power be handed over to Jones. Power will soon be handed over to the Jones who's still wounded. Doug Cusack and Pearson share a fifth of scotch together and they discuss their escape plans because they're all going to be purged or worse when jones takes power all the old plutocracy the people you know there's going to be a draining of the swamp here after pearson takes power 
Cusack and Pearson travel to San Francisco to meet with Rafferty, and the mutants are being prepared for relocation to Venus. And the three of them all get drunk together, and this is during the last 30 minutes of FedGov's authority. During this time, Pearson is arrested by four gray uniform men from Jones's movement, and a crisis government is put into place to oversee this transition to Jones's rule. Okay, so the events of chapter one, because everything after chapter one to about this point was flashback uh, to previous events. Because in the first chapter, they're discussing, Raffery and Cusack are discussing the rise of Jones, and this leads into the flashback. So uh, at some point after Cusack took over uh, the project in San Francisco, you you know, we we kind of, the timeline, the loop is, is, is restored here. So chapter one is placed somewhere, I think, between chapters 12 and 13, sometime in this period is chapter one positioned in the kind of chronological narrative of the story. Uh, so chapter 15, the genetically engineered mutants are we, who the last who last we saw really in chapter one, but they're talked about in, in chapter 12 and 13, 12. Now we return to the kind of seeing what's been happening with these mutants. They're on these two ships that are heading out to Venus. One of them, Lewis, these are names from the first part, but Lewis is one of the uh, mutants. He's attempting to repair the communications devices on one of the ships. And on the other ship, Frank, another one of the mutants, is listening to news from Earth and hearing about the handover of the government to Floyd Jones. The other mutants discuss the ideology of the Jones movement, and they believe it's based more on action rather than thought. Okay, so I'm going to quote here, I'm going to quote about a, a conversation between some of these mutants on the ship. The previous apathy and futility that life, characterized life under the FedGov system has vanished. The man in the street has a new zest, a new purpose in life, and now his co has confidence in his leaders. He knows that his leaders will act. He knows his leaders are not corrupted by intellectual paralysis. What's that mean? Sid asked dryly. It means they act first and think second, Irma said. The voice raved on. In the corner, the tape recorder was taking it all down. The four people listened avidly, not wanting to miss a word, loathing everything the voice said. It's so silly, Irma said. So sort of stupid and trashy, like bad advertising. But they believe it. They take it seriously. The wheels are rolling, Garrity stuttered, grinding it out. Swords sharp, sword sharpened cheap. Hey, a new business. If we ever get back to Earth, short sharpened, armored, polished, horses shod. Our slogan is, everything in medieval equipment... If it's medieval, we'll have it. Um, so this is their their conversation where they see this movement as kind of this infantile reaction, this desire for action, this desire for, for doing something, right, rather than thinking things through. And I talked a little bit in the previous episode about how this book was marketed. It was the way the back of this book, book I have. It's the Mariner edition, which was published, I think, in 2015. It presents Jones as the hero of the tale. And there's a way to say, yeah, he's got some ideas here. He's got the idea of venturing out into the cosmos. But his idea is just get on ships and go out and explore kind of wildly. But you have a better plan, actually, that was thought through, that was planned, that was organized. There's science behind it. And that's the plan to settle Venus with these, these mutants. So I do think that Dick is on the side of FedGov here. Um, but. 
anyways, so they're, they're talking about this, and we get this criticism of the movement as basically this infantile desire for action. They also talk about their preparation for there, and one of the mutants is worried that they're not really ready for life outside the refuge. There they had everything prepared for them. They don't really realize what Rafferty was trying, which was to really make them have to overcome their challenges as settlers. And that, it, it actually is being a little bit unprepared as part of the training, right? They think the refuge was a womb when Rafferty sees the refuge as more like a school. Now, the voyage to Venus takes around 12 days. They approach Venus, uh, and there's men on a Venusian base, and they ask for clarification of their missions. An automated system speaks in Rafferty's voice, in Rafferty's voice for the mutants, claiming that they're under the authority of FedGov and are on an automated ship that are going to land at a predetermined spot. The local officials are instructed to aid the residents of the ship. And coming off the ship, finally, the mutants realize for the first time that the refuge was a replica of the environment on Venus, and they feel for the first time in their life at home. So what this mission was, in some ways, was the last act of the FedGov uh, authority. Just as it was being destroyed on Earth, they send out this mission. And I guess at the time, the people on Venus, the the military base on Venus doesn't realize that FedGov has fully collapsed. They still respond to the authority of the FedGov. So the last act of the FedGov is successful, and the settlers land on Venus, land on their home. So for the first time, humans, post-humans in this case, are able to survive on Venus. So chapter 16. On Venus, sometime after the initial landing of the eight mutant colonists, the colony is thriving. They're preparing for a harvest of what they call corn. It's not biologically our corn, but it's also kind of a mutated version of the food grown on Earth. All prepared in advance, all planned out. The mutants have built homes, farms. They've applied machines to making Venus's environment vibrant. They've identified local species, including a type of bird, which they use as kind of their animal power, their muscle power. You know, they don't have horses and things. So they, they have these Dobbins that they're called. They're kind of a bird. All the non-Venusians, the people who are not genetically engineered for the environment, have died, and this leaves the planet in the hands of these post-human mutants. And when they're not exploring the surface, or while exploring the surface, the colonists run into a dead drifter. Remember, these are the these are these creatures that were kind of passing through the solar system, landing on Earth. This was the spark point for the Jones movement was these drifters, the violence and the hatred towards these drifters. They find one on, on Venus. And they find that it has not only survived, but it was growing into a zygote. And they learn that the drifters are not mindless species, uh, mindless creatures from another planet. They're actually pollen. They're actually the foundation of life. They're, they're more like spores. And here on Venus, they're able to survive. So they, it's just like, you know how plants, they just kind of spread out their pollen wherever they can, hoping, or spread out their seeds, hoping that they'll take off somewhere. They can on Earth, but on Venus they can thrive. Or at least it seems possibly they can survive. Now at the same time, news reaches Floyd Jones that human scientists have made the same discovery. The pollen uses the planet as a womb before breaking off into interplanetary medium where they'll live their lives as, as adults. So their relation to Earth is not as conquerors. 
it's closer to the relationship that the Venusian mutants had to the refuge, right? That it's just a temporary staging ground. The drifters were not a threat in themselves. Jones didn't foresee this because you could only see a year into the future. He th thought they were invaders. That's what he saw when he looked at them in the past. But now that he gets closer to, when he moves forward in time, he realizes that no, they weren't a threat. They were just kind of using Earth temporarily, just like they are using Venus. All of these attacks against uh, drifters were not attacking a, you know, a invading species that was going to take over Earth. The way Jones presented it, they were just going. They were just temporary visitors that needed Earth to incubate. With this discovery, Jones realizes his movement. It's the foundation of his movement is a failure. It's a lie. And he realizes also that people are going to realize that he's not omniscient. Actually, his ability to know the future is quite limited. He's popular, but he realizes he makes mistakes. Jones visits former security director Pearson, uh, who was the guy who was arrested in the earlier chapter. Jones and Pearson agree that the quote-unquote crusade, the effort to explore planets outside the solar system, is also doomed. Jones explains, because he knows something, he's a year in the future, so he knows something that Pearson doesn't yet know, and that is it's doomed because in a reaction to the violence against the drifters, the plant-like organisms from this other planet are going to close Earth off as punishment for destroying their offspring, destroying their babies, essentially. And this will prevent any future exploration. The crusade cannot move outside the solar system. In fact, what's going to happen is these aliens are going to contain Earth, see it as a threat. Jones offers Pearson his old job as security director. And when Pearson refuses, Jones threatens Pearson, saying that... Basically, he threatens to experiment on, on Pearson. And there's actually a doctor there who's got this weird experiment. But he doesn't follow through on it. He realizes that he's losing power, he's losing control. And um, he actually starts to think... He actually knows he's going to die soon. So he starts to be able to see far enough in the future that it's not quite a year anymore. Right, which suggests that his time on Earth is going to end. So, chapter 17. Um, Doug Cusack, we're back to our main character, Doug Cusack. He's talking with other members of, of the police resistance uh, to Floyd Jones' fascist and populist crisis government. Two members of the ruling United Patriots arrive in an official car. One of them is Cusack's ex-wife, Nina Longstrom. And after 28 months with Jones's organization, she has risen quite high in the organization, but she is also ready to defect. She informs Cusack that the Great Crusade has failed. Again, the Great Crusade was this mission to just kind of go blindly into space, um, but this was stopped by these plants who have these extraterrestrial, extrastellar plants that have sent the pollen, but now they're pissed off, so they've locked off Earth. At a coffee shop, Cusack and his ex-wife talk about things and they explain the truth about the drifters, that they are pollen, that this is just natural retribution for humans, you know, the human acts against their gametes. This is going to limit humans to just six star systems. She also tells Cusack how Jones has already predicted his death and defeat. And despite holding on to all political power, his doom is imminent. She also explains that Pearson is being solely poisoned by Jones and in for sort of revenge. And she makes clear that no matter how bad things will get, in the end, Jones will be incapable of keeping track of the very many people, you know, 
that could be a threat to him. And Cusack develops a plan to confront Jones by entering into his movement, basically as a as an agent. And that's the kind of the weakness of, of, of Floyd Jones in the end. One is he can never see the long term. Well, there's actually two big weaknesses. One is he can never see the long term consequences of his actions. The second is his omniscience is so limited. He only can know what he's going to experience a year into the future. So he's fine predicting things that are going to happen, big events, and use them to gain, gain power. But when his power relies on him knowing what maybe millions of people under him are doing, what can, you know, he can't manage a whole institution that way. So his omniscience is so limited, it's, it actually is a weakness in the long term. So we get to chapter um, 18. Doug Cusack and his ex-wife are on a car on the way to the FedGov offices where Jones can be found. They bump into one of the rank-and-file supporters of the Patriots United cause. It's a young boy selling these crusade buttons. This is raising money. These are efforts to raise money for the interstellar explorations. He doesn't even know that these missions, the Crusaders already turned back, uh, knowing that humans can't explore beyond these six stars. They reach the offices. Nina demands an audience with Jones, saying that it's an emergency, and they end up in a waiting room. They make all the proper requests and fill out the paperwork. And while waiting, Cusack prepares a gun that he's smuggled into the office. It's kind of unrealistic that you could get a gun into essentially the dictator's office, but uh, we'll take it. Before long, Cusack tell, tells Nina to leave, and he's escorted into Jones' office. So we get our final confrontation between Jones and Cusack. And I think the last time they met was when Cusack and Jones... Well, when Cusack was questioning Jones, right? I think they only meet three times in the whole novel. Once in the, where is it? Once in the carnival, once is questioned, and then once in the climax of the novel. Jones apologizes for not having cigarettes to offer his guests, but Cusack has brought his own. Jones then says that Pearson has died in the morning, and as Nina reported, he was actually poisoning him. I guess there's shoutouts there to maybe like Napoleon being slowly poisoned. Jones taunts Cusack more by comparing his ex-wife to one of the many, quote, sex star society females who have joined the movement. This implies both that Cusack was a bad lover and also that Jones had sex with his ex-wife. Cusack then reflexively shoots at one of the bodyguards, uh, knowing he'll have to kill them before he can get to Jones. But Jones jumps in between the guards and is struck between the eyes, um, dying. Right. So again, this kind of future was written. Jones knew he was going to die in this assassination attempt. So um, there's no way of really changing it. Chapter 19. Soon after Doug Cusack's successful assassination of Jones, he returns to his apartment where his ex-wife is. Neither can believe that he was able to kill Jones and escape with his life. Um, jo Cusack notices a package with a reel of audio tape and listening to it, they hear Jones's voice. I've talked about this several times in this series already, is this use of audio tape as the technology. Science fiction writers are notoriously bad at predicting future technology. They tend to just project things they have available. So this re the, the, the persistence of this reel-to-reel -reel tape is common in Dick's science fiction. It's kind of like the same way no one predicted the internet in science fiction. Here, no one really predicted um, CDs, DVDs, uh, or even electronic um, data. Anyways, we got Jones telling him 
you know, he made, he made this recording before he died. Jones explains how Cusack should not take credit for the assassination since Jones had, you know, willed his own death. He says he planned to save, did this to save his political reputation. By dying before the ships returned from the Great Crusade, Jones ensured that he would not be blamed for their defeat. People will see Jones as a martyr and blame relativism and FedGov for his failures. He apologizes for insulting his wife and explains that former security director Pearson is not really dead. Cusack predicts that in a century, Jones will be deified as a great you know, hero. And in fact, that Jones did kind of save his political reputation. They discuss where they should go and hide out until this political transition is complete. They decide to remarry, to collect their son Jackie, and find a new home off-world. In the final chapter, chapter 20, we're back on Venus. The mutant settlers celebrate their first native Venusian child born between to one of the couples, Lewis and Vivian. This birth pr proves the sustainability of the Venetian experiment, Venusian experiment. The mutants have continued to document the flora and fauna of Venus, and they start to domesticate the local species, including the Wuzzle, which is the most intelligent of the indigenous species. A refuge has been built on Venus, which stimulate, simulates the Earth environment for three newcomers who have come to live on Venus. These three people are Jackie Cusack, Doug Cusack, and Nina Longstrom, recently you know, remarried and their family reunited. Doug and the mutant settlers, uh, Frank, agree to celebrate the birth with a beer. They talk about how Doug has brought mice with him to make the Earth-like refuge feel a little bit more like home. And as the novel ends, Doug talks about his plans to return to Earth someday when, when Jackie is ready. And this we have an inverse of the very first chapter of the novel. In the first chapter, it was the Venusians being in a refuge, preparing for uh, settling Venus. And in the final chapter, we have an Earth-like refuge in which a young person is being trained and prepared for return to Earth, hopefully when the political situation is more stable and maybe a better world can be waiting for them there. All right, so what can we say about this novel? There's a lot actually to say. Um, thematically, let's go back over these themes a little bit. Thematically, the big one is, I guess, the precog and the posthuman. The precog is one of the most common posthumans in Dick's whole work. Uh, and these precogs, you know, you have them in Minority Report, you have them here, you have them a little bit in the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, and they have different functions. This is always the first full treatment of the precog. They become one of the symbols of the posthuman, right? Because they, through their ability, know, really don't experience time like humans do. So this makes them something different than humans. They're lacking a central humanity, a central element of humanism and humanity, which is temporality. Now, there's other stories, though, that kind of explore other types of post-human mutants with different talents and abilities. And the stories like the, the World of Talent, uh, Cyman Heal My Daughter, those are the two big ones that explore different mutants. But you also have the Golden Man and Crawlers and, and a handful of others. For Dick, the post-human is fully beyond humanity. It's not an extension or, or an improvement of humanity. So I really want to insist on a distinction between the transhuman and the post-human. I've, I've been talking with my friend Richard, uh, who's been posting a lot of these podcasts. 
you know, about this. And I think go back to my episode on the golden man, where I debate with him a little bit, this distinction. The transhuman is someone who uses technology to enhance the limits of humanity, right? Maybe extend memory or learn languages or to see better, right? Anyone who has glasses is essentially being a transhumanist, right? Using technology to expand on the abilities of humanity. There's no distinction here. There's no idea in transhumanism that humanism is limited. So life extending technology is a bit problematic here. If technology allows us to extend humanity's lifespan to centuries or millennium or even longer, does this make us no longer human? This is the question we have to face. If you go through human literature, you know, death is such a common theme. That's always, it's been seen as a central part of humanity, right? The fact that we will die. If we can overcome that, does that make us less human? Or the old experiment, and I think I'm copying this from an issue of Transmetropolitan, the, the wonderful comic book series, which I definitely recommend um, reading. The, the idea here was, like, if, if you look, cut off your arms and replace them with robot arms, are you still a human? Yeah. You cut off your legs, too, and you replace them with robot legs. Okay. Well, what if we get a heart, like Jean-Luc Picard? He has a robot heart, right? An artificial heart. Are you still human? Well, most of us would say yes. And at what point can we stop? Do, does replacing our bits and pieces with robotic pieces make us less human? Right. There's a story on this, and I'm, let me stop and find the name of it because I forgot it. Okay, it's C.L. Moore. Well, C.L. Moore was a was a kind of a pen name for Catherine Moore. Um, so she she published basically as a man or at least as gender neutral Catherine Moore uh, it was actually written by a woman but the story is called No Woman Born it was, it was written back like I think the 30s and this is someone this is about someone an artist a dancer or something Deidre who's horribly destroyed by you know and it, she's her body's horribly injured and she's brought back basically as a cyborg with some body parts kind of like Robocop and, you know, the whole story is about, is she still human? At one point. So that whole issue, let's set it aside. That's not what Dick's talking about. Not, Dick's not talking about the dilemma of transhumanism. He's talking about pure post-humans. People who, through evolution or mutations, become different than us. So the post-human for Dick is fully beyond humanity. It's not an extension or an improvement. While hum human humans may often treat the post-humans with kindness, respect, or attempt to to understand them, the post-human is incapable of seeing humanity as anything other than tools, you know, or kind of a forgettable past, right? So you got kind of the Magneto argument here. Their exceptions to this are pretty no notable, actually. And he, Dick seems to change his mind about this because in the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, the post-humans, the precogs, are simply working for corporations to tell you what future fashion trends are going to be. They don't seem to be fully human. I mean, there's weird things with them, like I think two of them meet and they know they're going to be lovers, so they just jump into the sack together. But they, over time, I, I think he kind of loses this insistence that they're fully beyond humanity, like you have in The Golden Man and in this story. Now, Floyd Jones is certainly one of the more memorable of the mutant fu futurists in Dick's early works. He's a precog who has the memory of everything that happens to him for about a year into the future. This allows him to speak at an early age. It allows him to overcome, you know, when he begins to use his talents, he's able to use it to secure an income as a gambler. 
Later, he's become a fortune teller at a carnival. And eventually is able to rise to political powers and start a movement. Jones, though, sees himself as a pioneer of humanity's future due to this ability. Um, and he has this very futurist philosophy, thinking humanity should dream big, go out, the Great Crusade, go settle the universe. His movement attacks relativism, which is based kind of on the idea that we can't know. There's so much we don't know, so we shouldn't insist. Jones is the opposite. Jones knows what the future can be, at least in the short term, and therefore insists that we must project to the future. And when he takes political power, he calls for a grand crusade to the stars, sending out settlers and explorers. But this really complicates things with this vision of post-humanity. How can it be that an individual who is beyond human capacities and experiences, right, none of us can live our lives twice, he, Jones can, how could this become the means of embracing a fundamental progressive humanist vision? Well, in the end, it doesn't, because that's not the source of the frontier that's successful in the novel. That's a fail. The, the, the blindly going into the future is a failure here. So the futurist philosophy, and for that I mean futurism, go back to early 20th century futurism, and the fascist idea of projecting one's will to the future, that's a failure. Now, but yet the frontier is the heart of the American humanist experiment. To, if there's an American humanism, it has to be in some way reckoning with the frontier. It may even be the heart of the Enlightenment project in a way. This idea that we can remake the future through science, technology, knowledge. Knowledge is power. Now, what is kind of shocking in this novel is that the humanist project has been killed due to the ideology of relativism. That's what Jones claims. That's what his followers claim. That's what Nina Longstrom, Nina Kusak, believes. Now, it's actually, though, the mutants that salvaged something of a humanist project by settling Venus. But they settle it through science, through planning, through documenting the species. They do the hard work of it. They don't just jump into a ship and go out to space. So I think here Dick is on the side of, of a planned, purposeful, humanistic project. So I think that's what he's getting at here. Now, another thing to talk about thematically is relativism. Dick imagined a wide variety of political systems and ideologies in his work. Few are as memorable or as prescient as relativism. Dick, writing from an age of intense political conflict between ideologies, imagines here a political system that would be post-ideological. The cornerstone of relativism was that no one should say something that can't be backed up with immediate facts. All opinions, political, artistic, or banal, should be left unspoken. This will ensure that there'll be no more wars because there'd be nothing to fight over. Dick may not have imagined a world where, quote unquote, reality has a liberal bias, right? End quote. This, that comes from Stephen Colbert, of course. Or political fights over the interpretation of facts, such as climate change debates, right? Where you can have a major political party deny scientific facts on climate change. He didn't predict that, but, you know, he couldn't have known that, but he certainly seems to predict it here. Relativism may not have worked out in practice in the book, but we are in a wash with this political correctness, this, you know, and here I'd say the people who deny climate change are being politically correct. They're allowing a political philosophy to trump reality. So we do have something like relativism in our world. 
whatever the virtues are of applying social pressure to prevent hate speech and sexist speech, and I, I totally support those efforts, or you know, the amount of self-censorship might be troubling. And I think there's a big tension in the politics of today. I think it, it exists over you know some of the hatred and you know towards quote-unquote political correctness or feminism you find online is about that people feel this reaction to being self-censored. At least that's part of it. Some of it is just latent racism and sexism. Now, it, it certainly does silence odious ideas, but does this create social solidarity? That's my concern. Where can we get social solidarity from? And does it, it doesn't seem to come from self-censoring and shouting in the call-out culture is, is kind of what bothers me a little bit. How do we move to a society without war, without racism, without sexism, without, though, confronting those ideas openly? You know, it's not how we can ensure that no one is offended in their everyday lives. What we want is a just society. What we end up in relativism in, relativism in this novel is an entirely banal political ideology. While ideological conflicts are bad, certainly the 20th century teaches us that ideological conflicts are some of the worst in, that, we, that we can see. You know, World War II and the Eastern Front, the violence between Russia and the, the Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany was immense, tens of millions of dead, right? But maybe our dilemma today is too little ideological conflict, too little class conflict, too much banal politics, which makes it very difficult just for us to confront things like climate change denial or you know, inequality. If we can't articulate our values into a political program, into a political ideology, what's our foundation for resistance? And, you know, I think sometimes this is the problem with many social movements in the world. They can oppose something. I, I live in Taiwan, and you had the Sunflower Movement a few years ago, and this was a, a movement against a you know, closer economic connection with China. But there wasn't a clear ideological vision for an alternative to that. You know, they said it was pro-democracy, but really it was just anti-China. Being pro-democracy means nothing without a clarity about what our democratic system should look like. And so we're seeing some of the effects, I think, of relativism, not only in our contemporary political correctness, but in the failure of the left to challenge global capitalism. Another major theme in this book, of course, is the strain marriage. The Cusack's life in the world of relativism, where any social excess, drug use, adultery included, is entirely socially permissible. Nevertheless, Nina Kusak is bored of her life, bored of her middle-class existence, bored of her husband. And she turns towards the Jones movement, not really for ideological reasons. She doesn't stick with it to the end. It's really for excitement, to break free of the banality of her domestic life. In one dramatic moment, she dares Doug to even beat her. She's eager for anything to break the, the, the tedium of her existence. For Nina, the frontier and the political movement become something very sexy and attractive to her. It's almost a form of family therapy. In the end, when they finally move together into Venus, Kusak and Doug, their marriage restored, they move to Venus, their marriage is rebooted. It's revived through change. It does take a new environment, a new philosophy, a new outlook on life to save this marriage. As with political systems, marriages thrive on change, revolution, and transformation. Or at least that might be what Dick is suggesting here. So, what to say, final conclusion and evaluation of this novel. Philip K. Dick's perspective on the posthuman did not radically change after the publication of The World Jones Made. 
Um, he would seem to make Precog a bit more human in the novel The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. But as the main outlines of the Precog is here, it's, it's in this novel, it's in The World of Talent, and Simon, Heal My Daughter. Characters like Floyd Jones and the Golden Man pass away and are replaced with the inhuman android or the mentally ill schizoid in his later novels. And we'll talk about those when we get to those novels, like especially We Can Build You or Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. And this is the common criticism of, the, of Blade Runner, because Blade Runner, the movie, is about the humanism of these replicants. And Dick's novel is more about the inhumanity of the android. Now, if we take the Venusian settlers as part of Dick's closure of an argument on, on the mutant, and actually if we, you know, chronologically, most of what Dick wrote about the mutant was written in the stories of 1953, 54, 55. The Hoodmaker, too. Um, can't forget that. Minority Report. Those were all written before this novel, actually. So this might be kind of closing a chapter in Dick's career on his questioning of, of what the post-human may mean for the humanist project. Now, one of the post-humans explains to Cusack that the newborn Venetian child is part of a new era. Quote, healthy as a wuzzle. In fact, it's the new wuzzle, the replacement wuzzle, a better wuzzle to take the place of the old, end quote. And that's literally on, like the last page of the book. The victory of the post-humans over humanity was not through conspiracy or conquest or genocide, which was hinted at in other works like The Golden Man, The World of Talent. Instead, here the humans have largely done in themselves in through their own prejudices and violence, attacking the drifters, falling into the banality of relativism. It, is it possible that the post-human has been transformed from a threat symbolized by Floyd, Floyd Jones to an insurance policy symbolized by the Venetian settlers. So that's my conclusion. I think this is this book is closing kind of a section of Philip Dick's career and it's one of his major arguments is about the posthuman and he's moved from seeing the posthuman as the threat in the golden man to the foundation for a, a new future for humanity and the Venetian settlers. So that does it with the world Jones made. Uh, if you have any comments about this work, any opinions, if you take issue with anything I've said here, if you want to engage in a conversation with me, please leave your comments below. Um, but from now, we're going to go back to the stories and I'm going to deal with every story until we get to, I think, 1956. And we'll look at uh, the cosmic puppets. Um, so thank you again so much for listening and supporting this series on on Philip K. Dick. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, but see you next time. And possess my tired thoughts once more. That living dies, that living dies, that living dies. <laughs>